Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the privilege of being here at this camp meeting. And we pray for a special blessing today for everybody that's here, including the children. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Yesterday, when our time was up, we were talking about uh, God's love for the world and that we are to love the world. But then John says in chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. But we're told also to love the world that he loved. He loved it so much, he gave it his son to die on the cross. And has that world gotten any better? Is it any better than it was on June 6, 1944? What came after that? The Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Middle East, the, 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 the war on, of terror. It's still going on. Human beings make war. They kill each other. And that's the world that God tells us to love like he loved. But then he tells us don't love the world or the things in the world. What sounds contradictory. But then he explains him, himself. First of all, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Sounds contradictory. But world here refers to those things that are hostile to God. That's what he's talking about. And that take the church away from him. And then he tells us what he means by the things in the world. The desires of the flesh, verse 16. Lust. Is that a problem today? Oh boy. And the desires of the eyes pride in possessions. And I, I mentioned yesterday that anybody in whom the word of God abides knows what he's talking about. To know the revealed will of God for righteous living is to know the difference between good and evil. And the church of the last hour is being warned by John and is to know the difference. But it's being warned about the devastating effect of the sensuality, and we're experiencing that today with the, all of this gender confusion and materialism on the mission of the church, and which are not from the Father, as John says in verse 16, chapter 2. And this is serious. This is very serious for the church of the last hour. Ellen White says in First Testimonies, page 531, those, listen carefully, those who think they can serve the world and yet love God are double-minded, losing all sense of their obligation to God and yet professing to be Christ's followers. They are neither one thing nor the other. They will lose both worlds unless they cleanse their hands 
and purify their hearts through obedience to the pure principles of truth. So what is the conclusion? The church that's faced with meet, is faced with meeting the demands of the last hour mission needs people who love the Lord and who love his truth supremely without compromise, without equivocation. Just like those young men that landed on the beach at Normandy in 1944. That's the kind of people that we have to be. We're a part of the last church and the last hour mission. Now, though 1 John was written near the end of the first century, John's thoughts as an apostle and also as a prophet were on the close of earthly history, specifically on the last hour and the return of Jesus, as he says in verse 28 of chapter 2, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Why would we shrink from him in shame? If we're not doing what he told us to do. And by the way, you believe in the Trinity, don't you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit co-equal in essence? Yes. But what, what was Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember? What was his prayer? He was facing the cross. What would you do if you were facing the cross? You, you would be somewhat reluctant, wouldn't you? But on the other hand, if you're the Son of God or a believer, you would want to do what he wanted you to do. So Jesus was wrestling with the will of God. That was his prayer, wasn't it? What did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How would you describe that? Was he in submission to the Father? Yes. Even though they were co-equal in essence, Jesus did what the Father told him to do, sent him to do, and he said what the Father told him to say. Some people today are having a problem with that. And I don't understand that, having a problem with Jesus being in submission to his Father. That doesn't mean that he was subordinate to him or not equal with him. It simply means that he did what the God, what the Father sent him to do and said what the Father told him to say. Now, does that denigrate Jesus? No. It elevates him, especially as our example. And that's what John is talking about. If, if, if we don't do what he tells us to do, then we will shrink from him in shame, and rightly so. And we need to remember, as I said earlier, that, Jesus, that John was close to Jesus. He traveled with him. 
He watched him as he ministered to the needs of the people. He had heard the promise of, of the Lord's return from Jesus himself. And he was there with the rest of the disciples when Jesus said, Matthew 16, verse 27, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So John, in, in his gospel, he quotes Jesus' words to the disciples when Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And then later in the last book of the Bible, also written by John, in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And John's word on this is the Bible's last word. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen, says John. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now he's an old man, overjoyed with that, with that hope. And just as the church of the last hour will do, he lives his last hours in the throes of political, social, and religious turmoil. And the parallels are incredible between the time in which he was living and the time of the last hour in which we're living. But his mind does not dwell on the signs, but on that to which they point. And it's on the church of the last hour. Why? Because during the time of the last hour, and just before the return of Jesus, there is a job to be done. A mission to be fulfilled. A mission to be finished. And by the way, that's the emphasis of the current ad administration of the Michigan Conference. And in order for the church of the last hour to do that, it must be able to distinguish, John says, between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The ability to do that, to distinguish between truth and error, is critical for the last hour church. To know the difference and to take an uncompromising stand with truth, no matter what. That's how serious it is. And furthermore, that church must be prepared to meet the demands that are required by the mission to be fulfilled during that last hour. And this letter is, the, is most relevant for the Protestant churches of today. It's most relevant for us who claim to be the remnant church. But the Protestant churches of today that developed on the basis of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura need to read 1 John, the Bible alone as the authority for faith and life, not the, the demands of culture, 
or philosophy or scholars, but the Bible. That is what Protestantism has historically based its confession. God used Protestantism to revive Christianity after the Dark Ages, and I, I was so impressed with Ellen White's chapters on the Reformation in the Great Controversy and what she said about Luther, Martin Luther. He's, he, he's still a hero of mine. God used him powerfully because Protestant, Protestantism was used to revive Christianity after the Dark Ages. But however, it's sad to say some of the great Protestant churches are abandoning sola scriptura. And in the process, they're scuttling the Reformation. I'm not going to go into detail, but I, I could, about the church that I left to become an Adventist. Fulfilling the characteristics of the churches that John identifies in Revelation 17, verses 4 and 5, as the prostitute, harlot, daughters of the woman he called Babylon the Great. And as my good friend C. Mervyn Maxwell points out in his marvelous, who is now sleeping in Jesus, his marvelous commentary on Revelation entitled God Cares, in volume two he says, no daughter is born a prostitute. They choose to become so. It is a step-by-step -step process of compromise ending in apostasy. One of the most disastrous, disastrous of those steps on the part of Protestantism was buying into what is known as the historical critical method of Bible interpretation. And I was confronted with that when I was a seminary student in the Lutheran Seminary in Chicago. My first confrontation with the historical critical method in which doubt predominates over faith and the biblical message is questioned from an increasingly secular base. And so because of this retreat from sola scriptura, there are three things in this letter that today's Protestant churches find very difficult to deal with. The first one is the close relationship between faith in Jesus and the keeping of God's commandments. Number two, the difference between practicing righteousness and practicing lawlessness. And three, the conflict between the spirit of God and the spirit of Antichrist. And so in the light of the last hour, John warns the church he loves of the great danger to its message and its mission. In other words, the deception introduced by the spirit of Antichrist. Pardon? Would you repeat those three again, please? Repeat the three, yes. 
a close relationship between faith in Jesus and the keeping of God's commandments. Current Protestantism has difficulty with that. And number two, the difference between practicing righteousness and practicing lawlessness. And three, the conflict between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Antichrist. And it's the deception introduced by the Spirit of the Antichrist that he is concerned about. It's the same spiritual power that opposes Christ, which Paul speaks of as the mystery of lawlessness and the lawless one, whose appearance, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning with verse 7, is a, it's a, his, his appearance is by the activity of Satan with all power and signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So Satan is the power behind the lawless one, the spirit of the Antichrist. His method is deception. In other words, get you to think in a different way. Deception that is wicked. And he appeals to those who refuse to love the truth. After I was exposed initially to Adventism and its theology, and its understanding of scripture, <clears throat> I was faced with a critical de decision. And I went to talk to a, a Lutheran Bible student. He taught at the Lutheran Bible Institute in Minneapolis, a man that I respected, and shared with him what was happening, and I asked him what he thought I should do. And he told me, he said, you need to give your wife an ultimatum, either her marriage or the Adventist church. And I was, I have to say, I was tempted. But the Lord did something. He brought to my, rem my remembrance the fact that I made my marriage vow before I made my ordination vow. And I made that vow seriously to God, not just to my wife. I promised God that we would be together until, life, until death do us part. So I couldn't give her an ultimatum. I couldn't. But then I went and dug out my old Lutheran material because I wanted to see exactly what the vow was that I made when I was ordained. And, you, you know, it's the same vow I made when I was ordained into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I vowed to preach and teach the Word of God. Amen. It didn't say anything about loyalty to the Lutheran Church. So a door started to open. The Antichrist, Paul says, Satan is the, is the power behind the lawless one, the deception, the way you think. And the direction is away from God's revealed truth. Now, was my struggle easy? No, it wasn't. I had a lot of friends and history and spiritual experience. Our heritage is in Finnish Lutheran pietism. It was a struggle, yes. It was difficult, but I, I had to do it. 
there are people still today that say that the only reason I'm an Adventist is because of my wife. That's not true, but that's what people say. I didn't listen to her at all. I had to. I had to find out from other sources because I knew exactly what would happen if I became an Adventist. People would say, oh, he just followed his wife. Anyway, the direction is away from God's truth. And how? How is that? By, by outright rejection or by denial or by the addition of human philosophy and or ecclesiastical tradition or by reinterpretation or all of these put together and then attempting to persuade others to believe a lie. How could I have continued in the Lutheran ministry when I knew definitely, and even Luther helped me with this, as I said yesterday, that Saturday was the Sabbath, the true Sabbath. Amen. How, could I, how, could have I, how could I have stayed and pastored and promoted Sunday after I learned that? Not, couldn't do it. Now, did John know this when he wrote the words that we're now going to read? Look at chapter 2 beginning with verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to, to deceive you. And then turn, turn to chapter 4. And let's read the first six verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and, ha and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, 
and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now here, here's the great controversy. That's what the great controversy is all about. As it affects the very faith and lives of the members of God's church. Impacting its message and its mission in the critical time of the last hour. Here is the great struggle for truth that will determine whether or not the church is fully prepared to meet the demands of its mission in that final hour of history. John is the only New Testament writer who uses the term antichrist. And I said it earlier it has two meanings, against or opposing Christ and instead of or in place of. Christ. He doesn't specifically identify the Antichrist here. He leaves that up to us who, if we're interested and concerned enough, and the last our church ought to be, will search for biblical and historical evidence of the identity of the Antichrist, especially the books of Daniel and Revelation. Comparing God's word with the record of of historical events from the time, from their time up to the time of the last hour and drawing what for the believing Bible student ought to be obvious conclusion. I remember when my wife and I were studying with a young, with a young woman who was interested in our church at our dining room table where we met and we would simply open the scriptures and show things to her. She was a believer. She had been a believer for years. Very devout woman. She would read and listen. And her jaw, I would literally drop. And she would say, how come I never saw that before? She became one of our best Sabbath school teachers. What John tells us is that the presence of of the spirit of the Antichrist and false prophets are the proof that it is the last hour. But to know that is not enough. To know it should set alarm bells ringing, causing that church to be most diligent to know the truth so that they can overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The spirit of Antichrist. And John also calls our attention to one of the effects the spirit of Antichrist has on the church faced with the demands of the last hour mission. And this is the saddest thing of all. It makes us weep. Chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The temptation was, as I was preparing this, the temptation was very strong not to deal with this, just to ignore it, to somehow tiptoe around it. But we can't do that because this is central to 1 John. 
and to the theme of this series, this study. We would not do justice to 1 John if we ignored what he says here. He's talking about deception, about abandoning loyalty to the church of the last hour, to its message and its mission. He's saying that the faith of those who went out was not firm enough, not fully established in the truth. Hence, they are easily persuaded, easily swayed by the Antichrist and the false prophets to believe a lie. And furthermore, the fact that they went out indicates that they were really not of us. Otherwise, they would not have been persuaded by lies, but would have continued with us, as he said. Is this not the sad experience of the remnant church? We all know former members that have left us, laymen, pastors, teachers, even theologians, relatives, and we feel like they have betrayed us, even reminding us of Judas who betrayed his Lord over a few pieces of silver. You know, only a friend can betray you, but in reality, it is God's truth that is betrayed, not us. They cause trouble for former brethren. Now, why is it that people are more ready to believe the stuff that they read or that they see on the internet web than the testimony of scripture alone? Yes. Yeah. I, I was just, <clears throat> when I read that, <clears throat> excuse me, the last sentence of verse 19 says, but they went out, that it might become plain that they were not of us. I was just thinking of that the shaking that we were told will happen. It may be yeah, you're comparing this to the shaking. I, I don't know whether we can do that or not. It's possible, yes. Now, you know, some people may be thinking, well, Pastor Holmes, you left your former church. Isn't that the same thing? I'm sure some people would see it that way. But the Protestant church I was part of was in the process of abandoning sola scriptura, and still is. And right now it's a huge struggle. But I was determined to stay with the Bible, and I still am. Amen. I still am. I, Shirley and I were invited to attend a meeting with some members of our former denomination who were concerned about things that were happening in their church especially the retreat from Scripture alone. And in the course of our, our meeting with them, I asked if it could be considered a form of apostasy, and the answer was yes, they said. And the next obvious question was, what does the Bible, the Word of God alone, say God tells us to do in that kind of a situation? come out of her, my people. Yeah, the answer, if we adhere to Scripture, to sola scriptura, is to come out of her, the apostate church. Why? Lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. In other words, lest you participate in her work of apostasy and deception 
as well as the ultimate consequence, which is judgment. God is being gracious. This is his grace when he says, come out of her, if you're in the apostate church. He wants to save you. There's a big difference, after all, between falling for the deceptive lies of the Antichrist and false prophets and obeying the call of God to come out. Is the distinction clear? One is a response to lies and deception. The other is a response to the call of God based on his word alone. The choice is up to each one of us. Pardon? Did they leave your friends? Some of them have. It's all a part of preparing the church of the last hour to meet the demands of its mission. Yes. Speak up so I have hearing aids. I have a problem. I look at all the different churches, and I've been to a lot before we came to the Adventist church. Each one of them is falling into that same path where they're all compromising with the true beliefs of God's holy scripture. You know, and how do they go from one church to another? I mean, the only one that I can find that's not compromising, truly, and still holds to the word of God, is the Adventist church. I mean, we're, like my wife says, you can't go anywhere else now. We know the truth. That's what my wife keeps saying. There's nowhere else to go. <laughs> well, concerning the return of Jesus and the, the events that preceded, the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter or a website. But it also says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, the King James says, of falling away, comes first. Apparently, this prophesied, though sad, experience is part of that preparation. It doesn't weaken the church. It is intended to make her stronger. And why is that? Because there's no room for vacillation now. Things are getting serious. And those that are left are more united, more certain, more determined to remain faithful to Bible truth no matter what. The example by way of illustration is Nebuchadnezzar's image. It stood on feet of iron and clay which cannot mix. In other words, it was the weakest part of the image what it stands on and where it stands. In other words, truth and falsehood cannot be mixed. If you try, what do you have? Somebody would say, well, you have half-truth. No, you don't have half-truth. You have falsehood. You have a lie. There's no such thing as half-truth. And where did the stone come from, which represents Christ and his kingdom? Where did it strike the image and smash it to bits? On the feet, the weakest part. The rock is solid, it's unbreakable, with no cracks or weaknesses, or it cannot do its job. And what is the antidote 
that protects the last hour church from the poisonous effects of the Antichrist and false prophets. Well, it's in the text, Daniel 2, verse 18, I think, or no, it's 1 John 2, 18. The church knows that it is the last hour. It knows that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world already. Because of its careful study of the Bible, it knows its enemy and how that enemy operates. It does not ignore that reality, sweep it under the rug, as it were. Pretend it's not so. The evidence of the Bible match the, event, the events of history. And the last hour church is keenly aware of the insidious, elusive, diabolical power of the spirit of the Antichrist. Its deep study of the Bible enables it to identify the Antichrist power and so be prepared to meet it. And second, that church has been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge, says John. And the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. The word does the teaching. Jesus said in John 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And notice the relationship between the anointing and the truth. The members of the last hour church are not awed by human or ecclesiastical claims of superior spiritual knowledge, not awed and seduced by pomp, ceremony, wealth, or power. It knows that the humblest person with the Bible in his hands has at his disposal more wisdom when it comes to the knowledge of salvation than all secular and religious authorities combined. And why is that? Because lies do not have the same source as truth. Truth comes from the living word, Jesus, and is revealed in his written word, inspired by the spirit of truth. Lies come from Satan, broadcast about by the spirit of Antichrist, and they constitute the spirit of error. The last hour church abides in the truth, which it has heard from the beginning. And because this is so, its members abide in the Son and in the Father. Abide means to stay with it, certain of it, unmoved by falsehood. It means to remain and to continue. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, John 8, 31, if, a condition, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, he did not say that we are his disciples if we simply say so, but only if we abide, which means stay remain, continue in his word, sola scriptura, 
And Protestants ought to know that. And it's only on that basis and on that authority that the last our church can test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now listen to this statement from Martin Luther. Quote, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every position of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, he says. And to be steady on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Now, unfortunately, I, I, don't, I don't know why, but I don't have the sword. But I know that's Luther. Now, listen to what Ellen White says. Testimonies, volume 3, page 281. If God abhors one sin above another, of which his people are guilty, it is doing nothing in case of an emergency, indifference, and neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. Let me ask you, is, 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 the, is our church, the last our church, facing a crisis of any kind right now? We need to listen to these kind of words. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.